Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, U.S. and Chinese military officers have held their first official talks since the year 2021. Boeing CEO admits, "quote unquote," our mistake after Boeing 737 Max door panel accident. The Chinese mainland has issued a sweeping plan to boost integration development with Taiwan, and the European Union begins talks regarding its own military mission in the Red Sea. To listen to this episode again, or to catch up on previous episodes, download our podcast by searching "World Today." Chinese and U.S. military officers have held their first formal talks in more than two years. The talks were held in Washington D.C. this week between the Office for International Military Cooperation, was China's Central Military Commission, and a team led by a U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense. A Wednesday statement by China's Defense Ministry called on the U.S. to seriously take China's concerns, adding China will not make any concession or any promise on the Taiwan question. And the statement is also demanding that the U.S. reduce its military presence and provocation in the South China Sea. So joining us now on the line is Professor Zhu Feng, dean of the School of International Studies, was Nanjing University. So thank you very much for joining us, Professor.、Um, do you think,、uh, first of all, this latest military talks are a sign that Beijing and Washington? Are following through on a deal struck by President Xi Jinping and President Joe Biden back in November. Yeah, I think last November,、uh, China-U.S. summit meeting also reached a very significant consensus.、Um, the military relations should be revitalized, particularly with almost a three years, you know, suspension, mid-to-mid engagement. Uh, is also some sort of a potential,、uh, we say, uncertainty if the both sides just uh, uh, face the up to some sort of、uh, accidental collisions at the sea and in air、uh, in the West Pacific. If uh, uh, such things happen, for example, U.S. frequently just uh, uh, dispatches planes and the warships close to the China's、uh, territorial waters. It's a, a traditional way the U.S. show its、uh, dominant power and uh, uh, fabricating some sort of a reason of uh, uh, free navigating, free navigation. So without the、uh, military relations, without、uh, military dialogue, military negotiation based, you know, crisis control and management, you know, the mechanism. If、uh, such a、uh, encountering. At the sea and in air, will even just tragically、uh, lead to some sort of a collision. It probably will become some sort of the source、uh, of escalating、uh, conflict between the two sides. So that's why I think the military、uh, relations should be、uh, revitalized. So recent、uh, China's PLA、uh, officers visit to Washington D.C. It's also、uh, one of the continued Asian.、Mm. I think the last month, the two 
chief staff of the both military just uh, exchange the uh, general abuse, even just virtually. Mm. So, according to the two sides' readouts, respectively, Chinese officials expressed that China is willing to develop a sound and a stable military-to-military relationship, while the U.S. side stressed the importance of maintaining military-to-military communication to prevent competition from veering into conflict. What do you read from the wording here? And by the way, do you think there is any precondition for maintaining a stable military-to-military uh, communication mechanism? Basically, I don't think there will be any precondition to defining with say the mil-mil relationship because I think it's such a military-military uh, context and a dialogue. Absolutely, should be based on the mutual respect. And even、uh, mutual accommodation. So, if there are any、uh, preconditions, well, just uh, uh, set as a, some sort of uh, uh, unilateral, you know, requirement. I don't think the Chinese PLA will accept some sort of the redemption of the mil-mil、uh, dialogue and the contact. But the problem is, if the two military just、uh, have they working together, talking, discussing, and exploring. The way the both sides could manage their relationship—it's not just a very fundamentally、uh, requirement for the China-U.S. relations could be truly just you know extend on the con- controllable and manageable manner. On the other side, is also very clear cut.、Um, well, see, today's world is heated by a lot of violence, firing. And even、uh, military conflict, U.S. and China should just、uh, shoulder the shared responsibility to be a great power.、Mm-hmm. We should working together help, you know, modifying some sort of a, such a tension、uh, over a couple of regions. So from this point, I think the mil-mil relations should、uh, be based on the, some sort of the mutual respect and the peaceful coexistence and the win-win. Cooperation doctrines very clearly and fundamentally laid out by the Chinese leaders.、Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we also see it's a very big signal of a shared, you know, great power responsibility. Hmm. So the U.S. side has raised the issue of China-Philippines sea encounter in the South China Sea. Of course, on this issue,、uh, from China's perspective, China is of course. Just、uh, merely defending its legitimate maritime rights over there, rather than harassing or bullying the Philippine side. And then on the Taiwan question,、uh, obviously, as we can see from the readouts of the two sides, the drastic differences between the position of Beijing and the position of Washington remains. So, do you think military、uh, negotiations or talks like the latest one we have seen this week? Would、um, effectively reduce the contentions between the U.S. and China on these issues. Of course, you raise a great point. If we examine such a very,、uh, we say, complicated, you know, landscape of the、uh, China-U.S. relations, we'll see some sort of a such a potential risk point. It's not just the Taiwan issue, South China Sea issue, and、uh, even East China Sea issue. Uh, all you know, just、uh, how they、uh, coming together. So there's always 
just trying to overplay some sort of uh, regional geopolitical factors to leverage heavily and aggressively on the China's peace, you know, seeking uh, development. So actually, as you mentioned, escalating tension between China and Philippines over the second Thomas show is very clear uh, manifesto where U.S. is the main, you know, the intervening factor behind that kind of things. So that's why I think the military relations is really parliamentary significant. Two military not just needed to talk on how to manage some sort of uh, uh, escalating tension. Most important factor is both sides should also just uh, have they uh, learn some sort of uh, their counterparts' uh, real objectives and reduce the any misperception and the misconduct. If the relations could just uh, constructively and productively move that way, then we will see uh, Eastern China Sea, Taiwan Strait, and South China Sea as well. Could it be just uh, how they under the uh, expectable peace and stability. Now, Professor, some some media reports tend to blame China for suspending its military talks with the U.S. in protest of the Taiwan visit by the then, you know, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. What is your take on this? Do you think China should bear the responsibility for a lack of military dialogue between the two sides in the previous、um, period? Yeah, I think on the one hand, the Taiwan issue absolutely is,、uh, we say,、uh, China's internal affairs. U.S. should just、uh, stop, you know, intervening, and also stop, you know, playing the file and intervening the Taiwan、uh, cross Taiwan Strait relations. Otherwise, like any、uh, tragic escalation of the tensions over the Taiwan Strait will be definitely just the、uh, how they pointing to. Some sort of、uh, very serious, you know, the, the the consequences because China has no way to concede over the sovereign claim and even China's key national interests. But the problem is, we also know why the U.S. just uh, uh, keep you know、uh, intervening and 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 the fire playing over the Taiwan issue. The reason is that China policy change, therefore American Taiwan policy change. So military relations is not just some sort of very important breaker mechanism to keep the U.S. and China just not just how say in some sort of a collision course. Most importantly, we should also use the military relations, military talk to reduce some sort of misperception and even stop either side would like to just very very uh, dangerously uh, play in the fire. So the Taiwan issue is very, very important, you know, testimony on how the military relations could go in some sort of a high qualitative, you know, manner. Okay. The final question before we let you go briefly. So, realistically speaking, Professor, do you think the current situation between the U.S. and China? Allows for any room for, say, realistic cooperation between the two sides. I mean, between the two sides' militaries. Yes, I think that since the summit meeting just happened in Bali Island, as well as the、uh, San Francisco,、hmm. I think there is、uh, some sort of very productive consensus, which has been established. 
bombing the U.S. China, no matter how they different, how they contentious, how they competent. Um, but we needed to learn more relations into manageable, peaceful coexistence. From this point, without war, without even just the way say some sort of a very disastrous military conflict, is uh, I think uh, both have leaders uh, highly shared you know the conviction to keep the U.S.-China relations well managed. So from this point, male-male relations play a key role, not just to help reducing the misperception, but also get the both sides really understand preventing the escalation of the risk and reduce some sort of potential tension is our our, our shared responsibility. Professor Zhu Feng, Dean of the School of International Studies with Nanjing University. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. In my opinion, the world today is one of the best China radio programs. In the world today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please come to join us. You are listening to World Today. The chief executive of Boeing has admitted it was the company's mistake after one of its、uh, planes suffered a door blowout after immediately taking off in the United States. No one was injured when the cabin door broke away from the Alaska Airlines flight on Friday. The U.S. has grounded more than 170 Boeing 737 Max 9 planes since that very incident. Earlier this week, the United Airlines as well as Alaska Airlines found some of their existing Max 9s needed a tightening of the bolts in their plugged doors. The U.S. National Transportation Safety Board is currently still investigating this incident, and no cause has been determined. So, joining us now on the line is Andy Mock, business analyst and senior research fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. Thank you very much for joining us, Andy. Glad to be with you tonight, Ding Hong. So, a door blowout shortly after the plane, the taking off of this plane, and a a, a revelation earlier this week that the bolts of the plugged doors within some of those planes needed a tightening. How often have we seen problems like this in our,、um, say, aviation history? Well, Ding Hong, that's a very interesting question. Given how serious、um, a problem like this could be,、uh, we should never see things like this happen. And again, when we look at uh, aviation, uh, aerospace,、um, the philosophy is zero tolerance, meaning that、uh, any problem like this should never happen because of the potential danger. But unfortunately, what we're seeing. Is the opposite、uh, that they seem to be happening more and more frequently. Okay, so currently, this latest、uh, incident or accident appears to be shining a spotlight on not only Boeing but also on one of Boeing's key suppliers, this company called Spirit Aero System. This particular company 
is a manufacturer of plane bodies for Boeing 737 Max family. This company is currently involved in a Um, I don't know securities lawsuits. I guess which accuses this company of hiding quality flaws from its investors. Of course, Andy. I mean, we don't want to speculate here, but do you think the business ties between this company and Boeing should be a key area for investigators to look into? Oh, I think it absolutely has to.、Um, now, irrespective of what kind of litigation is happening, and again, we have to be clear here. That、uh, Spirit Aerospace is a completely separate company from Spirit Airlines, which is an American airline.、Hmm. So Spirit Aerospace、uh, is a key supplier or vendor to Boeing, including producing these、uh, panels and these doors that go into、uh, the 737 Max. So clearly,、uh, this should be part of any investigation. Um, and you know, I think you're absolutely right that、uh, there have been questions.、Uh, this is not the end of the last few years. Not the first problem、uh, with Boeing and Boeing,、uh, the Boeing Max. Of course, there were two tragic、uh, crashes a few years ago. So、uh, you know, anything that includes Boeing itself, its suppliers that、uh, provide parts that have shown to have failed,、uh, I think certainly. Uh, must be part of any investigation.、Mm. So going further,、uh, based on what you have just elaborated, Andy, I mean Boeing has actually overhauled its、uh, safety reporting structure following two fatal crashes of seven thirty nine, seven thirty seven Max in twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen, respectively. For example. A board-level aerospace safety committee has now been created within this company, and Boeing's safety reporting、uh, functions have also been centralized. Basically,、uh, what that means is that previously, those top engineers among those separate business units or departments, previously they、uh, need to report to their unit leaders, their department leaders. Now. They directly report to the company's chief engineer, who is under the direct management of the company's chief executive. So, from a corporate governance perspective, Andy, how would you look at this particular overhaul? Well, you know, again,、um, any sort of、uh, organizational structure reform to prevent problems like this from happening, of course, is a good thing. Um, but we have to go back again to this principle of、uh, zero tolerance, because as we see with these two crashes, and you know, I think it was miraculous、uh, that no one was hurt in this latest Alaska Airlines Airlines、mm. incident. But we see that when there are seemingly minor problems,、uh, they can result in significant loss of life. So this is,、uh, to use a very American phrase. Uh, is closing the barn door after the horse has bolted, right, or ran away. That、uh, it's in a way already too late. So I think what's very interesting to consider is, you know, what are the reasons behind this,、um, and we can point to, you know, the the new navigation software only looking at one sensor.、Uh, these very technical issues, but I actually believe there are deeper. Reasons that I, I think perhaps we'll get to as we continue this conversation.
Hmm. Yeah, I guess the fact that、uh, no individual, including passengers and you know、uh, staff members on that board, was injured when its cabin door broke away from this particular flight on on Friday last week was indeed a silver lining. But Um, you know, talking more about, say, the business strategy or the business reshuffle within Boeing, some business analysts actually say that Boeing has actually made the right gesture, the right move within its,、uh, say, safety reorganization. However, the potential benefit of that reorganization over the years has been undercut by the, say, the the, the pandemic triggered. Business disruptions, etc., etc. What is your take regarding this kind of analysis? Well, I'm not so sure. Again, that this is、uh, can be attributed to the pandemic. So,、um, I mentioned earlier, Ding Hong, that there may be some deeper causes at work here, and I actually see a connection between this latest incident, the two previous fatal crashes, and something else that's in the news today, which is the U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin、uh, essentially being AWOL、uh, away without leave, and this is,、uh, to use a very technical term, the second law of thermodynamics, right? Which just states that systems move from order to chaos. So we can think of these as isolated events, but I think what connects them and is a deeper cause is an erosion in、uh, what we can think of in the United. As this Protestant work ethic, this belief that it's important to work hard, delay gratification,、uh, do the right thing for the sake of it being the right thing, and、mm. part of the reason I think we see this at Boeing and perhaps at Spirit Aerospace as well is the drive to increase profits. So, which has meant that they have offered early retirement to some of their most senior and most experienced people.、Mm. So. Uh, of course, civil aviation is a very technical field that takes expertise and experience. So, if you're focused on short-term gains, and as we know in the U.S., executives、uh, are increasingly rewarded for short-term performance. So, this creates tremendous incentives to cut corners. And I think this is part of a broader societal issue of entropy. So,、uh, the erosion of what makes an Orderly society. Yeah. So this erosion of this hardworking, say, work ethic, that's indeed、uh, very unfortunate. If it is indeed the case in the U.S. society today. But by the way,、uh, I guess back in 2019, Andy, you know better than I do, because another issue at the time under. Public scrutiny is this ties, especially human resources ties between Boeing and U.S. regulators in the aviation sector. Do you think、um, this particular issue has been addressed over the years? And do you think there is any sign that this issue played any role behind this latest accident? So, Ding Hong, again, I think this comes back to this phenomenon that I think of as, as a kind of a, an entropy. Uh, is that exactly it does? Because again, there is tremendous incentive, tremendous pressure、uh, on Boeing executives to get planes faster to market so they can increase revenues, increase profits, so the stock price will go up. And one of the ways they do that 
of course, is what's called, uh, perhaps we could call it regulatory capture. So meaning that they find various ways to influence uh, aviation regulators in the U.S. to maybe, you know, delegate more authority to Boeing. And in a sense, they're checking their own work. Um, and this, of course, in the long run, leads to a kind of a systemic breakdown, a systemic disorder, where we will see more and more of these uh, accidents happening. But in fact, they're not truly accidents because it's due to this yeah. erosion of a certain work ethic, a certain... Yeah, your point's well taken. Thank you very much. That was Andy Mock, business analyst and a senior research fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. We'll be back after a short break. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin Beijing. China has released a package of policies to support building its coastal Fujian province into a pilot zone for advancing cross-strait economic integration. The guideline is highlighting five areas of focus, including supporting Fujian in expanding opening up towards Taiwan, deepening integration of strategically important industries, and facilitating integration of Taiwan businesses operating in Fujian into domestic circulation. So for more on this question, my colleague Xu Yawen earlier spoke with Dr. Liu Kuangyu with the Institute of Taiwan Studies, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Dr. Liu, this announcement comes four months after China announced last September that Fujian would be developed into a demonstration zone for integrated development across Taiwan streets. So what's your take on these new measures? And also, what do you make of the role and advantages that Fujian plays? Well, this is very important measures, very important measures. We know that Fujian province and the Taiwan region are extremely close. Fujian is often the first stop for many Taiwanese to land in Chinese mainland, and more than 80% of the Taiwanese people are ancestral to Fujian province, which I believe Chuanzhou and Zhangzhou account for about 90% of them. So we can see uh, there is a very close cultural link. Taiwan's folk customs, beliefs, and operas and arts and so on are mainly inherited from Fujian. And in terms of uh, economic and trade cooperation, Fujian's province also the first province or the top province, uh, top province invested by Taiwan businessmen and has the largest number of Taiwan-related economic parks on Chinese mainland, around which 17 of which are national level. And in terms of non-governmental or uh, civil exchanges, many Taiwan Compatriots visited, studied, worked, and started business in Fujian province through this so-called small three direct links. And they settled there, and they bought real estate and highly integrated into the local community. On another aspect, we know that from the policy level, Fujian province has always been at the forefront of Chinese mainland's introduction of uh, policies benefiting Taiwan and has introduced numerous policies, measures, and practices to benefit Taiwan compatriots, such as this 31 measures from the Fujian province as early as 2018, and then and the 6060 uh, measures from Xiamen City. And over the years, those uh, in the construction of the cross-integrated development demonstration zone, Fujian has fully reflected the policy pilot model of the Chinese mainland in very successful experience of governance practice, and has accumulated very rich uh, experience. So I personally believe that Fujian province will now 
uh, and in the future build a more comprehensive cross-strait integrated integration demonstration zone. And in the foreseeable future, Fujian will be more powerful in the integration and development of Fujian and Taiwan and attracting more Taiwan compatriots and enterprises to land and to develop and also play a more positive role in the complete reunification of the motherland. Yeah, as you mentioned, um, Fujian remains the top destination for Taiwan businessmen to invest in. Um, I saw data shows that as of June last year, there were more than 12,000 Taiwan enterprises doing business in Fujian. So now with the new measures in place, how will it boost the confidence of Taiwan's business community seeking to enter Fujian province and the rest of the mainland market? I think the most prominent focus of this new policy is uh, uh, integration, including continuing to provide institutional guarantee and policy support for Taiwan enterprises to fully integrate into Fujian and continue to promote the integration of key regions we should actively promote mutual understanding and integration between Fujian and Taiwan uh, with these policies more and more. So we know from this policy level, it's once again determined to deepen Fujian province to build a Taiwan compatriots and Taiwan enterprises to land as their first home in the Chinese mainland and promote deep integration of Fujian and Taiwan in the aspects of economy and trade and promote integrated development of Fujian of Taiwan uh, to deepen the development of Fujian and Taiwan, their, their humanities and societies ex- exchange and including strengthening organizational guarantee, uh, which means that Chinese mainland will have a, a more complete Taiwan policy innovation measures and complete policy valuation mechanism uh, in exploring the new road of cross-rate. And according to the series documents re- recently issued both by Fujian province and by other departments are the central and local governments. Uh, we can see there is this theme for the development of Taiwan enterprises and Taiwan businessmen in Fujian. Their focus is in the new policy in the future is to support Fujian's expansion of opening up and cooperation with Taiwan, with people and businessmen from Taiwan. We will encourage the Fujian pilot free trade zone to conduct pilot trials with Taiwan to support Fujian in making good use of the rules of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which mm-hmm. is the RCEP, and support Fujian in strengthening investment attractions to Taiwan. And second, to support high-quality development of Fujian trade with Taiwan. Uh, I think the Chinese mainland will improve the facilitation of Fujian's trade with Taiwan, supporting Fujian in building trade hub with Taiwan, and support new forms of cross-trade service trade cooperation. And third uh, is to deepen the integration of development of Fujian and Taiwan advantages industries. Uh, we will support the deepening of industrial integration between Fujian and Taiwan, help Fujian build more competitive industrial clusters and support the, the construction of Fujian's cooperation platform with Taiwan. Well, Dr. Liu, we do have noticed that over the past few years, the U.S. long-arm jurisdiction over Taiwan's semiconductor industry has disrupted the entire chip supply chain and hindered Taiwan's exports of high-end products to the mainland market. Now, with the guidelines in place, how will closer cooperation in the technology sector between Taiwan and the mainland help boost the island's economic growth? Well, we know that the technology sector, especially communication and electronics, are very of huge importance to Taiwan's 
economic growth because uh, they highly depend rely on this. And this is uh, more about cross-trade trade and cooperation. So in my opinion, with the development of cross-trade integration and the deepening of institution, institutionalized economic and trade exchanges uh, with these new policies, with China's Chinese mainland's more efforts in regulating cross-relations and cross-commercial exchanges uh, as well. So on the one hand, for Taiwan's own economic growth, its basic supporting role of uh, economic data of the growth numbers, and that is a relevant share of Chinese mainland of cross-trade trade will continue to improve the, the quality, both in the sense of quality and quantity uh, in Taiwan's economic growth. And on the other hand, the Taiwan economy is now facing the decline in export competitiveness, the manufacturing industry, and the resulting employment problems, and then resulting the, the so-called industrial structure imbalance. We see there's the excessive dependence on some electronics industries and other difficulties. So as well as the situation of social supply tightening in Taiwan, and so on. We, we know that, that recently there is a shortage of eggs, there's shortage of vaccines and so on in Taiwan. With all these problems, uh, I think those new policies will provide new horizons and opportunities to provide better solution for Taiwan economy and society as well. Dr. Liu Kuangyu from the Institute of Taiwan Studies, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, talking to my colleague Xu Yawen. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. You are listening to World Today. The European Union will start discussions regarding launching its own military mission in the Red Sea. EU Foreign Policy spokesperson Peter Stano made the announcement at a Tuesday briefing, according to Russia's TASS news agency. Most EU countries have refused to participate in American-led Navy operation in the Red Sea. Since November, the Houthi rebels in Yemen have launched dozens of attacks on commercial vessels transiting in the Red Sea, saying this particular campaign is in response to Israel's war in Gaza. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Tim Anderson, director of the Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies, a Sydney-based think tank. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. So what do you think has made the European Union... Uh, consider launching its own military mission in the Red Sea? Well, the major container shipping uh, companies have made the decision apparently to avoid the Red Sea and uh, go around Africa, and that's costing up to a million dollars each ship, adding to the transport costs of, of the shipping there. They haven't really engaged directly with the Yemeni demands that the tracking be left on and that they'll let through ships that aren't going to the Israeli regime. So there's the, there's the standoff to start with. So why do you think most EU countries have refused to participate in this U.S.-led um, 
a military coalition called Operation Prosperity Guardian. Actually, what we have seen is some individual EU nations like France, Spain, and Italy. They were actually initially involved in the first place, but later on, they withdrew from this coalition. That's right, and the main the main concerns they expressed were they were concerned about the U.S. leadership of that mission. They were concerned to place their own forces under a U.S. command. I think they saw the likelihood of an escalation with the U.S. They they don't really trust the U.S. command that's not going to escalate things further. Of course. Um, they could turn the Red Sea into a battlefield, which uh, it hasn't become as yet. So they didn't really have confidence in the U.S. command there. And so since that time, a number of uh, European countries, Spain, Italy, Denmark, have talked about sending their own naval ships to escort their shipping, for example. And now more recently, as you say, the EU is talking about uh, a combined action. Hmm. So given the fact that uh, most EU decisions are more often than not, uh, based on a unanimous basis, do you think launching its its own military uh, mission in the Red Sea will morph into reality sometime in the future? It's possible, but it hasn't happened before. There hasn't really been this sort of combined operation because they've had NATO there and they've talked about um, combined EU operations. But I think it's more likely that these um, states are going to send their own naval boats to escort some of the ships that are, are aligned with their own um, their own domestic trade. Hmm. Now, um, Dr. Tim Anderson, you know better than I do because um, uh, the first Houthi attack took place in mid-November 2023, and you know nearly two months have gone by since then. It seems clear now to observers that the Houthis have a substantial amount of arsenal. Uh, some analysts say naval planners ought to be prepared for, say, concentrated, prolonged attacks simultaneously from several directions. So from a tactical or technical point of view, do you think it is easy for, say, for an EU uh, military mission to provide the kind of commercial vessels with the kind of military protection against, for example, drone attacks or missile attacks from Houthis? Well, we're talking about really the Yemeni armed forces here. Remember, I know that the UN Security Council designates um, the so-called Houthis as some rebel force, but really they control 70% of Yemen yeah. and they control the armed forces. They have a coalition there. So it's true they have substantial capacity. And given that the Europeans want to avoid confrontation, uh, the first option would seem to be if they comply with the Yemeni demands, that is to say, to leave the ships tracking on, to tell them where they're going. And if the ships are going, for example, from Asia to Europe and not to the Israeli regime, then it's quite likely they might get cooperation from the Yemeni armed forces. I think that would be their first line of uh, trying to engage in some sort of cooperation with the armed forces of Yemen. Hmm. So if the EU somehow ends up launching its own military mission in the Red Sea, how do you think that a that kind of a scenario might mean to the EU's relations with, with say, Iran? It is true that there's a couple of Iranian Iranian boats um, in that region now, but I don't think there's any prospect of, of conflict, and certainly the Europeans wouldn't want that, and there's no sign that the Iranians are going to provoke anything like that. I think really that, as I said, if they 
do start to communicate with the, the Yemeni armed forces, I think that the Europeans are likely to uh, find some uh, better course of events there. Hmm. So if, I mean, um, even in the case of the United States, Dr. Tim Anderson, you know better than I do, because uh, even President Joe Biden has been claiming that Washington does not want to enter into a direct military confrontation with the Houthis. That's the claim on the on the part of the Washington so far. But, you know, when most recently, for example, when a, a, a particular container ship called for help from the U.S. forces, they indeed had no choice but ended up killing several Houthi fighters and destroying three Houthi boats. So, you know, so if we talk about the EU's case, like you said, EU does not want to enter a direct military confrontation with the Houthis, but really under a very dangerous or precarious situation, um, do you think um, a direct confrontation would be inevitable? Uh, no, I don't think it's inevitable. I think that the Europeans would like to avoid it. They've seen that the U.S. is more inclined to uh, engage in a confrontation. They, they, it's true that even the U.S. to a degree is looking to avoid an escalation of the regional situation, but I think the Europeans even more so. So I think that they will probably uh, be a little bit more skillful in trying to look for some solution to the um, to the uh, the problem of the Red Sea. Basically, it's possible that they can still send their ships through the Red Sea and through sewers, and I think they'll be looking for some realistic ways to do that without uh, engaging in more confrontation with the Yemenis. Mm. So, by the way, how would you comment on the role of the EU so far in terms of seeking solutions to the ongoing Gaza crisis? Well, there have been sounds from some of the European leaders that they want um, a, an end to the slaughter that's going on in Gaza at the moment, but nevertheless, there are still players in Europe, Germany in particular, which are sending weapons to the Israelis. So they're seen as complicit in the region by many of the Arab populations, for example. So there is an additional problem there. If they are engaging in directly supporting the Israeli regime, it will be harder for them to get cooperation from the the Arab peoples who are now engaged in supporting the Palestinian people there, such as Yemenis and Lebanese. Hmm. So the final question before we let you go um, would you agree that in general only a ceasefire in Gaza can lead to um, a, a, a easing of the Red Sea tensions? I think that's, yes, that's obviously the first step that has to be taken. Um, we can talk about a political solution later on, but an end to this indiscriminate bombing, the targeting of the civilian populations, um, the matters before the International Court of Justice now, I think the first step has to be uh, a, a ceasefire. Unfortunately, the U.S. is not using its influence to do that at the moment. But certainly, I think many of the Europeans are inclined to support that, that direction. Mm, let's hope for the best. But thank you very much for joining us, as always. That was Dr. Tim Anderson, Director of the Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies, a think tank based in Sydney. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back. Hi, I'm Einar Tangen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the independent Taiher Institute. World Today is news without the hype and business commentary that is informed and up to date, presenting the facts and asking incisive questions. So join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening. 
You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin, Beijing. The Chinese embassy and consulates in the country of Ecuador are suspending their operations until further notice. It comes after the country's president declared internal armed conflict amid an escalation in violence. Daniel Naboa is also mobilizing the country's army to combat organized crimes with links to drug trafficking. The measure followed a day of riots at several prisons across the country, and it also came on the heels of a shocking armed takeover of a particular television station amid, amid its、uh, ongoing broadcasting. In the meantime, neighboring Peru has declared an emergency along its northern border with Ecuador. So, joining us now in the studio is my colleague Zhao Ying. Hello, Zhao Ying. Thanks for having me. Hi. So. Can you provide us、uh, with an overview of the current situation over there in Ecuador? Yes, Ecuador is now facing a major security crisis, and this is trigger- triggered by a chain reaction of events.、Um, this all began with the escape of a gang leader named Adolfo Macia from the prison where he was serving a 34-year sentence. Uh, while authorities are trying to track him down, this has sparked a domino effect of chaos.、Um, prisoners across the country, somehow emboldened by Macias' escape, launched violent uprisings, and there were incidents of violence in at least six prisons beginning on Monday, with 150 or more guards and other staff taken hostage by prisoners. And by Tuesday, the prison violence has spilled over to the streets. At least seven police officers were kidnapped. An explosion occurred in several cities.、Uh, President Daniel Noboa has declared a state of emergency, but as you said, the crisis reached a new level when the government stormed a TV station, taking anchors and staff hostage live on air. So the situation indeed very chaotic at the moment. Yeah. So. Um, sometimes it's、uh, for outsiders like us. I guess it's difficult to fathom out what exactly is going on because that country is so far away from China, for example. But in your observation, what are some of the key factors, key reasons contributing to the current chaos? Well, there are、uh, direct. Factors and there are long-term,、um, deeply rooted causes, of course.、Uh, so, as I mentioned just now, the direct trigger was the escape of the scan leader from prison.、Uh, his escape not only emboldened other inmates but also exposed the ga- gaping security holes in the system. So that kind of sent a message that anything was possible,、mm-hmm. and the domino effect was immediate. And that's why prisoners across the country launched violent uprisings, taking guards hostage, seizing weapons, and clashing. With security forces,、uh, but also we have to notice some underlying long-term issues that have contributed to the chaotic situation today. So,、uh, mm-hmm. first of all, Ecuador's location on major drug trafficking route fuels、mm-hmm. an immense black market, which has.、Um, You know, enriched enriched gangs and fueled violence.、Uh, the weak weak border control and corruption further exacerbated the problem.、Um, and also, the socioeconomic inequalities are another factor.、Um, poverty, lack of opportunities, and limited access to education leave many people vulnerable to joining gangs. Um, because the promise of quick money and a sense of belonging in these illicit structures become a dangerous temptation for 
those who are trapped in a cycle of poverty. So, mm. um, and also the the coronavirus pandemic over the past several years have also battered the economy and worsened the security in Ecuador. And besides, uh, public faith in the government and law enforcement has long been eroded by corruption and ineffective responses to previous outbreaks of violence. So this lack of trust creates a vacuum where gangs thrive because they are offering their own twisted version of order and protection. Um, and plus, the assassination of an anti-corruption candidate during the presidential contest last year have created a you know, volatile environment. So these underlying issues actually go far beyond the immediate prison crisis, and they, they reflect a complex web of problems that require not just a short-term response, but a long-term commitment to social and economic reforms. Yeah, short-term, a combination of short-term and long-term solutions. But somehow, based on what you have elaborated, my sense is that Ecuador's prison has been a really a focal point, uh, at least the immediate trigger of this crisis we're talking about here. So what are really some of the pressing challenges associated with the country's prison system? And how do you think it is um, it has been tied into a larger issue regarding, say, gang violence and drug trafficking? Yes, um, I think you're right in saying that Ecuador's prisons um, are facing significant challenges. Um, actually, a substantial portion of the prisons in Ecuador are already controlled by gangs, and, and problems like overcrowding, poor infrastructure, and understaffing have created a fertile ground for gang activity. And also corruption allows weapons to flow freely, um, turning prisons into havens for criminal operations. Um, so... We, we see this escape of this high-profile criminal um, actually exposes the system's vulnerabilities. And um, so the gangs operating within prisons not only contribute to violence within the facilities, but um, it also extends their influence beyond um, that ex- exacerbates issues of gang violence and drug trafficking. So the prisons, in essence, have become the breeding grounds for criminal activities in the country. Mm. So do we see any uh, plan on the part of, uh, say, the government to try to tackle the security situation in the country? Yes, President Daniel Noboa has declared a state, em- a state of emergency, and he also issued a decree on Monday stating that the country was in a state of internal armed conflict and declaring 22 gangs as terrorist organizations. Uh, the decree ordered the armed forces to neutralize the groups in line with international law and human rights. Um, and the president, who just took office in November last year on promise to fix the struggling economy and stem the violence on the streets and prisons, said he will not negotiate with uh, what he called terrorists. And he also said that violence is a reaction to his government's plan to build a new high-security prison for jailed gang leaders. Mm. Um, so, um, I mean... While the immediate focus of the government on, is on res- restoring order, um, the long-term challenges lies in trafficking the root causes of crime um, and also building a more stable and just society. And I believe the success of these efforts will determine whether Ecuador emerges from this crisis stronger or face further instability in the years to come. So I guess, um, for example, you talk about, say, this campaign promise of the incumbent president and his wording of, say, terrorists. And that's a pretty, you know, 
hardline wording towards criminals. So, how do you think this crisis might impact a President Nabowa's political standing? Briefly. Well, I, I think that will depend on how effectively it can manage and resolve the crisis. So, if his measures prove effective, that could enhance his political standing. However, as we mentioned earlier, the crisis exposes underlying issues,、uh, such as the government's struggle to control gangs, address corruption, and revitalize the economy. So,、um, I believe the government's ability to address the root causes of the unrest and implement long-term security reforms will be pivotal. Thank you very much for joining us. That was my colleague Zhao Ying. Unfortunately, that's all the time for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Ding Hen in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.